0: Hello and welcome to the Gala Morfrey, a history podcast. Uh, thank you for joining us again. Uh, my name is Will and I'm joined today by my very glamorous, lovely, slightly beardy assistant, Nick. How are you today, Nick? Uh, I'm grand. I uh, need a shave, apparently. Um, You're looking grand. Thank you. <laughs> You're... Um, I- <laughs> Is it? Is it because we're getting closer to Christmas? You're you're growing your Santa Claus beard for the year.
1: Well, you know, I am Saint Nicholas. This is just my side hustle.
0: Exactly. Yes, he's jolly, jolly old Saint Nick. That's what they call
1: you on the streets, isn't it? I've been called much worse than that on the streets. So yeah, I'll take that. Shouted from uh, from vans passing, jingling their bells at me. It's it's
0: yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, what 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 kind of society is it where? Uh, where a man can't walk down the streets of London without having bells jingled at him. Now, hopefully, uh, you've all listened to the last episode of The Gallimorphary and you would have heard the clue.
1: For anyone who hasn't already, uh, what are we talking about today, Nick? Our topic today is, is actually around some of the first, what has been called some of the first feminist legislation. And that was directly campaigned for by one amazing woman in the 19th century. And her name was Caroline Norton, born in 1808, Caroline Sheridan. And she was obviously born into a thoroughly patriarchal society. Though, as we just said, one might question if we've actually moved on from that. But back then, women had even less rights than even some animals, even in cases of murder. A case in point, the RSPCA was founded in 1824. And in doing so, that meant that animals had champions for their welfare, something women did not.
0: Yeah, it's a bit of um, a sad state of affairs i mean 18 um the 1800s okay 200 years ago but really that's not that long ago so women's rights in general are a relatively recent thing and it's for people like caroline norton that we can we can thank for for the rights that women have today in the centuries preceding the victorian era it had been normal for women to take a more active role in daily life Uh, with most families operating a business either in the family home or nearby. Uh, Women would contribute to the family business alongside their male family members, as well as performing their traditional domestic tasks. However, with the rise of men commuting to a place of work in the early 19th century, women quickly found themselves relegated to the home and strictly domestic duties. Uh, Married men and women came to find themselves living parallel lives, being together only during the morning and evening meals, while spending their days performing the tasks society deemed suitable for them. Uh, Men, being generally considered physically stronger and mentally superior to their female counterparts, were expected to support their families through work and upholding the moral balance within society, something which their weak-minded and morally compromised wives could not be trusted to do it was very important that women should not be encouraged to raise above their position in victorian society uh, or that which uh, victorian society had deemed fit for them um there are actually records from the time of doctors advising that women should not be overeducated as this would have a detrimental effect on their ovaries and thus their marriage <laughs> prospects
1: Such... <laughs> so it's i'm sorry it's it's just it's it's insanity, isn't
0: it? It just—it it is ludicrous, isn't it? Because some of these these sort of opinions, which were being presented as scientific fact, you have to wonder, like, what were these people thinking? Where do you get a stupid idea like, you know, women being educated damages their ovaries? It's
1: just—I mean, to be fair, a lot of men have their brain cells downstairs, so maybe they sort of thought it's the same for women. But I mean, it's just like, how do you even test that? <laughs> how, do you, how do you measure that? And sorry, I just want to clarify, we keep referring to the Victorian era, which she did live in. However, she also lived through a number of different monarchs. In fact, when she was born in 1808, it was George III on the throne. Then George IV came along. Then Willie IV. Finally, Victoria, who would be her last queen.
0: I always liked that William IV. I don't know. I don't know much about him, but, but I get the impression can you put your finger on it? I'm not sure. Maybe it's because he was the fourth. Four, that's a good number, isn't it? I'm not sure what else it would be.
1: Right. But yes, uh, So as as we said, um, Norton herself was an author, which, weirdly enough, was one of the more accepted forms of employment for women, because it meant they could stay at home and write whilst looking after the kids. Um, and she herself came from a family of Irish poets and writers, so she had a great literary history in her family. Uh, she was the granddaughter of the playwright and politician Richard Brinsley Sheridan. Um but of course, despite writing all these amazing works, her husband, who would, we'll go into detail in a minute, would legally own all the copyright and thus any earnings, simply because he was her husband. It's this weird legal thing in Victoria, not just in Victorian society, but in the 19th century where when a woman became married, she sort of legally ceased to exist.
0: Yeah, it was a a bit of a, a sad state of affairs, at least from a modern perspective, that as far as, uh, as society at the time was concerned, a woman, as you say, ceased to exist once she was married um, and become effectively property of her husband who would control both her possessions and her body. A husband had the right to control his wife in whatever way he saw fit uh, with nothing to stop him from physically or, or sexually
1: assaulting her. Um, I'd actually, just to cut you in mm-hmm. there. So there was... There was you. There was laws against bodily harm. Mm. You couldn't just beat your wife mercilessly, although lots of people mm. did and got away with it. But I think there was a general rule that you could use your fists, but if you started using anything heavier than that, you could you could face charges. Yeah, which is which is, hor- fricking horrible <laughs> to think
0: about. Uh, I think generally, uh, the these occurrences would happen within the family home and. The, the wife would be reluctant to, to report it for various reasons. But when a woman refused her husband's sexual advances, it would actually be potentially considered grounds for annulment, um, while a husband could forcefully rape his wife without fear of prosecution. Despite this uh, obvious injustice, Victorian society still believed that men were both morally and intellectually superior, while women were weak, irrational And incapable of making
1: important decisions. Oh, how times have changed. Norton actually commented on a lot of these disparities between women and men um, in her works throughout her life. And in in one of her books called Stuart of Dunleith, uh, some of her lines written for her male characters convey this quite well. In fact, one of them uh, reads, Everything that is yours is mine. The clothes you have on, the chains around your neck, the rings you have on are mine. The law don't admit a married woman has a right to a farthing's worth of property. Very unique wedding vow there. Exactly, yeah. Uh, it's open to some debate of, of how effective she was, but she was a, a recognised campaigner of her day, writing numerous pamphlets and and, and, um, and books around around the subject of women's rights, effectively. Although, strangely, she, she did subscribe to the theory of, the notion that women were inferior to men, as suggested by the Bible. But she always believed that in law women should, you know, have parity. So she was a product of her time, but she was also ahead of it in a way, if that makes sense. And and she was a very confident, vivacious person, and, and in fact she was very striking looking as well. Um, we'll we'll talk about her family in a second, but um, she almost had a sort of Mediterranean look about her. In fact, Disraeli, a youngster at the time, it's hard to think of Disraeli as being young. You just think of him as being old. Uh, nicknamed her Starry Night because of her, for her looks.
0: Mm. So Caroline Sheridan was born on the 22nd of March 1808 to Thomas Sheridan and the novelist Carolina Henrietta Callender. As you mentioned, Caroline's father, Thomas, was the only son of the Irish satirist and playwright Richard Brinsley Sheridan. Uh, and Thomas worked throughout his life as an actor, a soldier, and a sadly failed politician. Uh, Mother Carolina had been described in her youth as pretty, very sensible, amiable, and gentle, or high accolades for a woman at that time. Uh, Thomas sadly died in 1817 while serving as a colonial secretary at the Cape of Good Hope, leaving his family destitute. Fortunately, Prince Frederick Duke of York and Albany arranged for Carolina and her three daughters to be housed in a grace and favour apartment at Hampton Court Palace. Frederick was the youngest son of George III, then King of Britain, but also an old friend of Carolina's grandfather. Caroline and her sisters came to earn a reputation for their beauty and accomplishments, coming to be known as the Three Graces. Uh, Helen, the eldest sister, became a songwriter, composer, poet, and author as well as a well-known figure in London society. She would marry Commander Price Blackwood, and the youngest sister, Georgiana, became known for her beauty and would marry Edward, the 12th Duke of
1: Somerset. And it's actually also interesting to note that her father, Thomas, would actually um, be charged for a case of criminal conversation, which is something important to Caroline's story, as as we'll find out soon enough. And just to outline what criminal conversation is, it effectively is a, a euphemistic way of saying someone has slept with your wife so it's 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 basically adultery
0: yeah i think it it, it's um it's a civil matter though in in that by sleeping in with another man's wife you've effectively devalued her uh, and and her being possession of her husband it's for her husband to sue the the man who who slept with his wife it's a weird thing when you when you look back at it but basically it goes back to women being treated as
1: sort of chattel or um, possessions which brings us on to george norton who would become caroline's husband so caroline had a a sort of a a, a relatively nice enough childhood um, and she was schooled at you know quite well-to-do schools in fact she actually met her husband while he was visiting the academy she was attending in Warrish, surrey and immediately fell in lust or love, whatever you want to call it, her dark looks captivating him. I'd remind you, at this point, Caroline was only 15, and he was in his 20s. Her mother said, hold on a moment, you've got to wait three years before you go sniffing around my daughter. And to be fair to him, he did wait. But she also had other suitors. She actually had a, a rather pompous and boisterous Captain Fairfield, a sort of military man who was a bit adventurous, and then a scholar and a lawyer called Ralph Levison Smith who um, she'd met after leaving school in 1826. And they were sort of technically engaged, but not officially. And then he had a sudden and fatal bout of fever and died. Um, She would later remark on this, uh, saying that she realized she had lost her love and married an ass to get rid of her pang. Well, we've all been there, haven't we? It's gonna be great to see your girlfriend when I next (laughs) see her.
0: I was speaking from her perspective.
1: Right, okay, It's fair enough, yeah. <laughs> it's very true. The asking question, of course, was George Norton, who, although he wasn't too handsome and he wasn't particularly too wealthy, he was just persistent. He himself uh, knew a bit about law and politics and it actually became a politician himself. He stood unopposed for Parliament in Guildford, Surrey. Big up to the Guildford. H- however, he was a Tory through and through, much at odds with the Sheridans' family politics of supporting Whigs, so obviously her mother was a bit annoyed, but also more annoyed because he kind of made it out that he had more money than he did, and he didn't. Um, so anyway, in, in 1827, at the end of July, the 27-year-old George Norton finally married the 19-year-old Caroline Sheridan. And after moving around a bit after their honeymoon in Scotland, they moved to number two, Storeys Gate, in Westminster. And this would become very key for Caroline because it was right in the heart of all of the action in London. It would enable her to mingle with all members of political and cultural society and become known as a charismatic and outspoken storyteller, reveling in sort of flirtatious mischief and bucking normal social trends. She was very much a social creature, and and she really enjoyed being, you know, hosting people in this, in what would come to be known as her saloon. And their marriage had a sort of okay start. I mean, she gave birth to three kids in five years. So the first one came along in 1829, and that was Fletcher. Then came along Brinsley in 1831, and then finally William, or Willie, in 1833. Mm-hmm. Despite the baby-making, Caroline's husband had a passion for violence as well, and he regularly beat his wife for displaying a lack of respect. He was a, he was a very insecure man, and uh, he even threatened her when pregnant. You know, He burnt her hand with a kettle, so one story goes, and was thought to have beat her so badly once she miscarried. As, as you said, marital violence was all too common and, and and he just got away with it. Yeah, so he was uh he was a bit of a, a
0: piece of work really. Um to keep it polite. He was an utter bastard. Yeah, to keep it less polite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not not a very nice man. Um Caroline, however, was an avid writer. Um, having written a poetry book at just 17 called The Sorrows of Rosalie, uh, which was published anonymously in 1829. Uh, They were mostly melancholy in nature, but proved to be a uh, a roaring success. Uh, The Undying One followed in 1830, proving controversial for its topic, centred on the story of Isabel, the wandering Jew excluded from society. She also contributed to uh, many popular magazines sold at the time and edited them as well. However, in 1830, her husband lost his seat at the election that took place after the death of the monarch George IV. Caroline had great influence in Whig circles, who took power from the Tories, and her husband encouraged her to lobby the Home Secretary to get him a job as a magistrate. Here is where she struck up a friendship with Lord Melbourne and attracted Older widower. He and she wrote frequent letters to each other, and soon he became a regular visitor to Caroline's saloon at Story Gate. Regardless, the goal was achieved, and Norton was given a cushy job of a thousand pounds a year to judge cases in Lambeth. Uh, this works out at about ninety thousand
1: pounds a year today. God, it's half a sum, isn't it? Um, it's not bad though. Ninety grand a year. <laughs> <laughs> it's important to point out that George Norton. At- Encouraged her to, to talk to Melbourne To get him this position So he, he encouraged this connection mm-hmm. And then would immediately become jealous of it uh, But Caroline herself was she was, a, she was known to be a flirtatious host To all visitors, you know, men and women And her presence and liveliness Was often seen as a breath of fresh air Something George hated He hated mm-hmm. that she was more popular than him And many would come to chat at her saloon And exchange ideas and thoughts Not just politicians but painters, scholars All members of society and she also didn't let her husband's Tory beliefs deter her. She helped electioneer for the passing of, of many Whig reforms, like the Great Reform Bill of 1832, a massive Whig triumph that expanded the voting pool. Um, and she would also go on to march with trade unions in 1834 who were protesting the arrest of agricultural workers arrested for joining a union. And all through this period, she continued to write uh, plays and books to acclaim, earning you know, a pretty penny from them whilst rising through social rankings but as we said her writing was tinged by the sadness in her own life of the fact that she was in a very unhappy marriage but she had three children which she loved more than anything in the world and it would be one of the driving forces behind her engaging in in the further political activity she, she would go on to do but by 1835 her personal life had deteriorated so badly you know, she had to flee to a place called Frampton Court whilst pregnant because Norton was becoming really violent. Um, and after much negotiation, she did agree to return that summer in 1835 to George. Now, this would have a massive impact going forward.
0: Yeah, but meanwhile, her relationship with Melbourne continued. and There was no evidence of them having an affair, but plenty of signs. And it was often remarked upon that they were unusually close friends. In Easter of 1836, after being refused an invitation to Frampton Court by her family and Caroline making it clear that she would go, George took the children
1: away from her and she was powerless to stop it. Then came the lawyers. And what we mean by lawyers is a case of criminal conversation. Now we mentioned this with Thomas Sheridan earlier and this is where Caroline's experience with with this incredibly strange and cruel law comes in. So George attempted to sue Lord Melbourne, for adultery with his wife. And it's important to point out that Lord Melbourne was the Prime Minister at the time. And Norton was seeking damages amounting to £10,000, which is astronomical in today's money. Um, And the weirdest part of this, even though she was central to the case, she would not have a chance to defend herself or have a voice despite her words being quoted throughout the trial. In fact, she would write to um, one of her good friends, Mary Shelley, whom I believe we all know, of Frankenstein fame, deploring this. And she said, A woman is made ha- a helpless wreath by these laws of men. And under the law at the time, divorce with permission to remarry could only be secured through an act of parliament, which was very expensive. And this was something Norton had in mind. He wanted to sort of just get rid of Caroline. And in order to secure the divorce, he'd have to get her basically done for criminal conversation. Legal separation, which heavily favoured the husband, was the most common route people took. Um, and, you know, Norton had the money to sort of try this, this route out. The poor, however, had, had no chance of getting this. So they just separated illegally and remarried under the radar. One interesting thing about criminal conversation is that if you were the sort of claimant saying this person has sullied my wife, the smallest hint of negligence would deprive you of any remedy. In other words, if your husband didn't guard his wife well, the seducer could be found not at fault. Oh, OK. So it, what if the if the man,
0: if he doesn't protect the relationship, it, it becomes fair game or something? it'd bit like squatter's
1: rights? <laughs> not not really. <laughs> it's, it's, um, but I just I just thought it was quite interesting. So the press tore into her,
0: parodying her work, spreading malicious gossip and even using her miscarriage against her. All of her friendships became love affairs for jest. But Melbourne took the brunt of it. He became ill, suffering from stress and delusions of feeling strangled. Not to mention he was publicly embarrassed. I mean, that's that's the key
1: thing, isn't it? Publicly embarrassed.
0: Publicly embarrassed. You'd, I mean, all to decide. I know, you know, uh, Norton may have been smacking his wife around, but Melbourne, he was embarrassed. That's the thing to take from this, isn't it? Uh, they wrote to each other, keeping each other informed of the events. Um, in all of these letters, they both claimed that the... Uh, the allegations are untrue, both publicly and in private.
1: I think that's really important to note, is that even at, and we'll come to Melbourne's death a bit later, but even in his like final letter, not necessarily his will, he attested to the fact that this allegation was never true. And and Melbourne was many things, but he it was a consistent narrative throughout his life that he had never had relations with Caroline Norton.
0: Norton, uh, George Norton, was a failed tory politician and melbourne was the whig prime minister
1: i mean has there ever been any suggestions of ulterior motive here not that i could come across to be honest i think it was just george norton was a hateful little prick who wanted to make everyone else's life a misery because he was so so jealous and envious of everyone else's success particularly his wife who was who was an amazing woman and, and Melbourne was obviously the attractive, charismatic friend, and he felt so small and diminished by that.
0: Yeah. He was just a, an arsehole with an axe to grind then. Yeah. He wanted money as well, so...
1: Yeah,
0: fair enough. But um, the trial began on June 22nd, 1836, and the gallery was full. Everyone wanted to see this trial. Some reports suggest as much as five guineas exchanged hands for a seat uh, that's about 500 pounds in today's money the jury was all men of course uh, women could not serve until 1920 in court covering the case was charles dickens for the morning chronicle uh, i think he went on to do some other things that you might have heard of
1: he was already serializing his books at the time ah. yeah in in the papers it's how authors used to do it, remember they used to you know put, publish them in papers it used to be a big draw um Anyway, there was a big parade of witnesses uh, that Norton lined up, including his friends, (laughs) his his neighbours, and the domestic servants who indulged in gossip. Evidence effectively boiled down to a lot of hearsay, like, oh, she had disarray hair in the morning one day. Oh, I saw him put his hand on her shoulder. Oh, she went red in front of him once. It's just madness, madness and hearsay. But it just It's just sort of playground gossip
0: then. Essentially, yeah. what this whole thing hinged on.
1: Because th- there's no bang to rights moment where someone walks in and goes, oh, yep, yeah, they're doing it. Um, yeah. But the most curious witness who drew attention was an alcoholic former coachman of Norton called John Fluke, who, who claimed he walked in on Caroline one day, her clothes in disarray with her thigh visible in the presence of Melbourne, who wasn't actually next oh. to her. He was standing by the fireplace. <laughs>
0: While she was on the floor. He was in the vicinity um, of her thigh, though. Pretty <laughs> <Really> damning evidence.
1: <laughs> oh, the scandal. Um, however, there are some queries over whether he was paid for his testimony by Norton, considering he was an ex-employee with a drink problem right? Uh, who had been fired. Okay. Uh, needless to say, the trial ended in favour of Melbourne, and he and Caroline were both found innocent. And in the most impactful thing from this, which would have a a horrible effect on Caroline as well was that the acquittal meant George could not divorce Caroline. Right. They they had to be married until death. However, he still prevented Caroline from seeing their three sons, taking full advantage of the existing laws which automatically gave custody of children to their father. Mm. And this separation would be the driving force behind Caroline's political campaigning. Um, particularly because George was, as we've said, he was a massive to be honest. He indulged in brutality of the children. In fact, he even renamed William to Charles, because it was too close to Lord Melbourne's name. I mean, how petty is that?
0: Yeah, he, he sounds uh... Yeah, I, I think you summed it up quite well there.
1: Yeah. But Caroline... So Caroline used her passion for writing, combined it with this sort of radical streak she had. Obviously, her family is, was a weak leaning and she had a great desire to achieve change for women motivated of course personally by the fact that she was separated from her kids and it was agony for her so um this led to her writing a pamphlet the first one titled observations on the natural claim of the mother to the custody of her infant children as affected by the common law right of the father so obviously a very snappy title there
0: Mm, rolls right off the tongue that one
1: It was already being formulated in her mind in 1836, the year of the trial. And she had reached out to to Mary Shelley, as well as other women affected by the same cruel stance of the law, to to draw up her conclusions. Her mother, of course, didn't like this. She found the idea of pamphleteering for a lady most indelicate. And it didn't help that a lot of her friends and family didn't necessarily... Although the trial went the way of Caroline, I think they all kind of believed that she had been boning Melbourne on the side. Ah, OK.
0: So so the, the gossip still persisted, even though the trial had
1: found in her favour. Exactly. It, it didn't let up, and the media weren't very kind to her either.
0: The pamphlet was written ironically, using her husband's law books, and published in the summer of 1837. It was circulated privately, and argued for children under seven to stay with their mothers, older ones to be decided in the court of chancery. In a strange twist of law, illegitimate children were legally obliged to stay with their mother, whilst married women had no rights. Since 1804, there had been 13 cases involving custody in the court, and all but one of the women who brought them, out of whom there were seven in total, had lost. The winner won because her husband was being transported to Australia. Pretty uh,
1: inconvenient for him to start looking after the kids then.
0: Yeah, yeah, it, it was... um. It's a bit of a snag there, but um, I, I, I'm generally shocked they didn't just toss them on the boat, given the,
1: given the way that laws are run at those times. I mean, you, you
0: wouldn't—yeah, you wouldn't be surprised, would you, if they had no that you, they can go off to Australia? Uh, I'm assuming it was off to a penal colony.
1: No, just a holiday. Oh, just, just a. Oh,
0: yeah. But anyway, Caroline asked the lawyer and MP Thomas Talford, who had been one of Melbourne's defence lawyers during the criminal trial and asked him to draw up and introduce the Infant Custody Bill, which appeared in April 1837, before the pamphlet's release, often described as the first feminist piece of legislation. The bill stated it would empower the Lord Chancellor and the judges to make orders relating to the custody of infant children of tender age in cases where the parents are living apart on the application of either of such parents, or on the order of writs, or Habi's Corpus issued at the instance of the father. Uh, again, very snappy this one.
1: Effectively, what it was asking, <laughs> because I get the sense you don't it's know. It's just words, isn't it? Words, <laughs> and some of them are Latin. It was asking for arbitration in cases where you know, the mother and father were separated, and it, and the father had every right. It was asking for a sort of a neutral arbiter to sort of look at the cases and go, actually, yeah, the mother can have the kids this time, the father can have the kids this time. Hmm. However, then the king went and died, and in doing so, he ushered in the first female monarch since Queen Anne. We all remember who Queen Anne was, right? It's only been a month. Uh, She was Blackbeard's ship. Oh my God, it's Active Union? I'm sticking with Blackbeard's ship. Okay. Um, Anyway, that lady was Victoria, and it meant the suspension of Parliament and a general election. Because every time Monarch died, then you got a general election. Um, so the bill never got a chance to be debated. And in June 1837, after being separated from her kids for nearly 14 months, George finally conceded and allowed them a meeting after a letter from Caroline. Had sort of tugged at his heartstrings. But of course, negotiations broke down, as they always did. George Norton was an unreasonable b- so it was always going to break down. However, whilst Caroline's earnings went to him, he was also responsible for all of her debts, so he was doing everything he could to try and rid himself of this. Through legal separation, he even wrote a letter to the Times without any legal basis, publicly, in, in massive font, publicly proclaiming <laughs> he was no longer responsible for her debts. Right. It, it didn't mean anything, though. Uh, meanwhile, she printed another pamphlet privately and was circulating it to key political figures and friends, and it was called The Separation of Mother and Child by the Law of Custody of Infants. And it was an effort to kickstart the bill that had obviously gone to the wayside with the death of the king. And he Talford introduced the bill again in December of that year. And although he found fierce opposition from Tories, one in particular named Sugden, who argued against the right of a mother to her children, even though the bill actually did not seek to limit the power of the husband, but, as we've said, allow a neutral arbiter to determine access for the mother as based on their moral character, so the mother had to be good, mm-hmm. Sugden, however, played up to the fear of men's rights being reduced and and argued it would actually encourage women to just separate willy-nilly from their husbands. Now, we don't want that, do we? Oh, um, Um,
0: it's a floodgate fallacy, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's older Um, than you think it is. It's a lot older than this. Others suggested it could lead to adultery, and many said it was unchristian. However, the bill did pass in the Commons, (laughs) by, by quite a big majority, actually, 91 to 18. However, it was cast down in the Lords by two votes in July 1838. Strangely, one of the key voters against it was Lord Brougham, who had fought so hard for the Great Reform Bill only years earlier. But of course, this, this didn't stop Caroline.
0: No, so after this initially failed, she kept up her lobbying, producing a plain letter to the Lord Chancellor on the Infant Custody Bill in 1839. She faced a barrage of attacks against her, Many sordid suggestions around her private life, using her feminine wiles to get through immoral legislation. She was even said to be after the destruction of the foundation of marriage. The letter was published on the 15th of December, 1858, under the pseudonym Pierce Stevenson Defending the Bill, recounting the story of Caroline and the abuses she suffered under Norton, as well as countless examples of other women cases. Ultimately, it set out that the alteration of the law, and the issue was the key thing to consider, not Caroline, or whether she used wiles to influence people. By the 25th of April that year, the bill was back in Parliament, but amended, this time however asking for custody of children to virtuous mothers up until seven, as with illegitimate mothers. However, there was a double standard with adultery, that said if a woman is found to be adulterous, this prevents her right. The bill found a second reading and made its way to the lords again, Similar arguments were heard, but this time it passed. On the 17th of August, 1839, the bill was passed by royal assent by Queen Victoria.
1: That double standard is really important because it effectively meant that even though a man could have been accused of adultery or criminal conversation or whatever, you know, that didn't count against him. But for a woman it did. You had to be as clean as a whistle, no dirt on you. So despite this momentous piece of legislation passing that enshrines women's right to access their children, at least in some form, Um, Queen Victoria at the the time didn't even see fit to mention it in her diary (laughs) Um, But she did tell us about her lunch that day Uh, Women could now petition the court for custody And access rights of children up to seven And the father's right was no longer technically absolute Pending your moral character Mm. While the act gave married women for the first time a right to their children um, you needed to petition the Court of Chancery, and few women had financial means to exert their rights. So the poor were still buggered, but you know at least a bit more wealthy women could, could have a bit of say. But there, there was still a, a major barrier to women
0: exercising the, their new rights, though.
1: Yes, if you were married and poor, you were still basically screwed. For Carolina, uh, as we've said, this new law did not automatically mean happiness. Um, it didn't actually apply in Scotland Which is where George was keeping her children So remember from the Act of Union Scotland and England had separate courts mm. And and all the while this was going on And her and George Were still fighting She lost one of her children In a tragic accident in 1842 So the accident was The death of Willie Or rather the renamed Charles mm-hmm. Who fell from his horse Strangely the tragedy sort of shook george up a bit and for the first time in seven years caroline was allowed to spend christmas with her children albeit minus one of them Mm. um caroline herself was suffering from ill health and it was something that would pick up as she got older i mean she's still relatively young you know she was in her mid-30s she was 34 but she did then return to london which lifted her spirits and because she had access to her children to a degree now she she sort of regenerated herself a little bit mm. and she even went to model in 1849 for, for the fresco of justice which is situated in the House of Lords uh, and she continued to write obviously to provide income for herself and her useless, feckless husband Lord Melbourne though, her long time friend died in 1848 and typical of his generosity asked his brother to leave her some cash paying Caroline £200 a year. What's more he reiterated his declaration that nothing had been improper mm. as we mentioned earlier um, although he didn't actually technically leave her anything in his will he actually it was just a recommendation to his brother mm. the melbourne's family honored it because they figured he was the type of guy that he'd want his wish to be honored mm. and just to point out that that this is a few years after the bill has gone through now but even though george and caroline had separated back in 1836 just to just to give you an example of how petty he is because i just remembered this um not only did he barely give her any money constantly skimped on her allowance he didn't actually return any of her belongings including clothes that he had taken in 1836 it was a, that's how that's how petty he was it's incredibly petty she didn't really care about material goods mm. which is also because she you know, she was well enough off and well connected enough to be able not to but her love for her children was was one of the was one of the driving forces of her life but the the issue of money was now starting to To come to a head Because every bit of earning she had Every bit of copyright still went to George And even though they constantly Tried to make up throughout the years Negotiations kept breaking down And they came to another head In 1851 with the death of her mother Mm. Who she'd been nursing for a few years And this was around the time she wrote The novel Stuart of Dunleith That we mentioned earlier Which of course was (laughs) typically quite sad Quite melancholy Mm. But did have elements of romantic love Sort of triumphing occasionally but the heroine also saw her children die. So it was, you know, her life was influencing her her books continually. Hmm.
0: The death of uh, Mrs Sheridan complicated matters because it meant George inherited her property. And although Caroline was due an annual allowance of £480, which is about £40,000 a year today, George reduced this to the point creditors of Caroline sued him in 1853. The chief plaintiff was a carriage builder, and although George had signed a document saying he'd pay his wife's debts, he then argued that a man couldn't sign such a document with his wife. The case was heard in August 1853, on the 18th, at Westminster County Court. By this point, Caroline was in her mid-40s, with over half her marriage spent in a bitter feud, 26 years in total. George Norton used the money left by Melbourne for Caroline in his will, uh, after his passing, as an excuse not to pay her and proof of her infidelity he challenged years ago. Strangely, unlike the actual trial involving infidelity, Caroline was able to contest her innocence legally as a matter of legal record. Caroline won the court over with her testimony and grace, but regardless she lost on a technicality due to the expense being
1: incurred before any contracts were signed between them. Accepting the verdict, Caroline said, as she always did quite eloquently, I do not ask for my rights. I have no rights. I have only wrongs. And Norton responded with shouty threats, further endearing himself <laughs> to the crowd. But it led to her second act of campaigning, really. Uh, it's something she'd been thinking about for a while. So she began to campaign for changes in the law relating to married women's property rights. Her first move was a privately printed pamphlet, though it's, it's, it's a bloody long pamphlet. It's more <laughs> like a book. Um, English laws for women in the 19th century titles are getting snappier though Mm, you're definitely improving there and it came out in 1854 in which she used her own grievances and in quite some gruesome detail Uh, so she recounted all the abuse she suffered firsthand at the hands of George to persuade Parliament to protect the property and income of married women and she ended the pamphlet by writing I really suffered the extremity of earthly shame without deserving it. I lost my young children and came too late to see one who died a painful death except in his coffin. Mm. So really hard-hitting stuff. Meanwhile, her surviving children were sort of thriving. Brin, her younger son, had ended up in Italy getting hitched to a local peasant girl named Mariuccia. Uh, By 1855, she had two grandchildren. So she wrote another letter after this. She'd already written pamphlets influencing bills before, but this one is probably the standout one that history celebrates and remembers her for most, and it's called A Letter to the Queen on Lord Chancellor Cranworth's Marriage and Divorce Bill, 1855. And this argued the case for property rights for divorced and separated women, suggesting there was one law for men and the rich and another for the poor and women of the world. And to be fair, there was. It was produced in response to the failure of a bill earlier arguing for separated women to be able to hold property which began life in 1853 after a divorce commission looked into it but of course as with most things it didn't survive the lords because they objected to it because it might lead to cheap divorces
0: oh, um,
1: they were they were predicting uh, those elvis marriages in vegas where they exactly mm. the pamphlet covered all the disadvantages married women faced including the threat of violence no matter her character and she listed countless heroines of the past and present to remind men, men that women could do great things. So, you know, people like Florence Nightingale hmm. would had been like current heroes with the Crimean War, because this was around the same time. And she recommended that they be afforded the protection of the law, which was only fair. It's not unreasonable, is um, it? It's, oh, well, if you're an old white man, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's uh, women, rights, no. Yeah. She wasn't alone, though, so Barbara Bodekin would go on to set up the Women's Journal. a a, a, a very powerful magazine, was a champion of women's rights as well. And she also petitioned Parliament in 1856 on the matter of married women having a right to their earnings. Yeah, so
0: 1856 saw Lord Cranworth bring back the bill and Caroline used all of her connections and leverage to lobby in its support. Despite opposition from the church and some notable politicians like Gladstone and Sam Wilberforce, The bill passed in 1857 as the Matrimonial Causes Act. Many clauses in the act were directly influenced by Caroline's pamphlet. Uh, These included one which stated that a separated wife uh, was to be regarded as unmarried, uh, which meant that she could control her own finances and property. The new law did not, however, treat men and women on an equal basis. A man could divorce a woman if she was guilty of adultery. However, the woman could only obtain a divorce if she could show that her husband had been guilty of both adultery and a number of uh, slightly iffy crimes, including bigamy, rape, sodomy, and bestiality. Obviously, not all together. Just to point out
1: this. <laughs> no, that would be that would be quite a day, wouldn't it? It would be. Yeah, I mean, um, and actually, the 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 clause in the the law says incestuous adultery as well. So it's quite specific, uh, but also desertion. But it had to be for uh, without a reasonable excuse to commit any of these. <laughs> it's quite a qualifying sentence. You must have a reasonable excuse why you committed your bestiality.
0: Right. I, I would be interested to know if there were any court cases which found in the man's favour because of a reasonable
1: excuse for committing bestiality. So as we said, that although the bill didn't solve all her problems and, and that double standard remained, um, women did have a degree of protection now thanks to the role she played in, in getting this bill through and in fact the earlier bill as well. So now women had more access rights to their children and they had the ability to sort of try and claim a divorce at least on, on certain grounds with some protection over over what they earned. Um, although this wouldn't fully be resolved until 1870 with the Married Women's Property Act which finally deemed all wages and property that wife earned hers but it wasn't retroactive. Um, of course Caroline wasn't allowed to have a divorce at this point, um, mainly because she didn't have the grounds to divorce George and he wouldn't give her one. But also crucially because, remember, ages ago we talked about she fled when she was pregnant and then went back to him. And there's some weird quirk in the law which then prevented <laughs> her from divorcing him because she had fled and gone back to him.
0: So she, she didn't have uh, his, his
1: desertion of her as grounds because she went back to him. No, because she right. willingly went back. So, although he was threatening, <laughs> threatening to take the kids away forever, so willingly is is right. is the wrong word.
0: Today, Caroline's poems are occasionally anthologized, but her reputation as a writer has declined since her death. Because Caroline had left George but gone back to him in 1835, she was never able to divorce him. However, in 1859, a deed of separation was finally agreed between them leaving her free to live as if she were unmarried. She continued to write, but her health was deteriorating and she spent a lot of time caring for her sons and grandchildren. Her son Fletcher died of tuberculosis in 1859, while Brinsley, who possibly suffered from paranoid schizophrenia, caught her much distress, but was her sole surviving son. Having been fully freed by George Norton's death in 1875, Caroline married an old friend, the widowed Sir William Stirling Maxwell on the 1st of March 1877 in the drawing room at 3 Chesterfield Street. Caroline's second son, Brinsley, succeeded to the title of Lord Grantley upon his death. However, Caroline died a little over three months later from peritonitis on June the 15th 1877. She was buried in the Stirling
1: Maxwell vault, which was in Scotland. So, yeah, she spent time there as a child even though she was irish she had sort of grown up a bit in scotland so as we've mentioned like caroline very much adhered to notions of equality of the time she she campaigned tirelessly to have women accorded the same sort of status in the law but she she didn't really get involved in women's suffrage and as early as 1838 she wrote a letter to the times saying the natural position of women is inferiority to man that is a thing of god's appointing not of man's devising I believe it sincerely is part of my religion, and I've never pretended to the wild and ridiculous doctrine of equality. So it's so a bit different from some of the campaigners that would follow her. But as as you mentioned,
0: she was a product of her time. It sounds a bit like two step forwards and one step back to modern ears, but you still have to give
1: her credit for what she did achieve. No, she was an incredible woman, and she achieved so much. And and the thing was, for her, the notion of equality of man and woman wasn't the issue here. It was, it was the notion of equality under the law, which was a man-made thing. So she recognised, albeit whatever you believe, that God made man and woman, and he didn't make them equal, but man-made law, and that was unequal. And the principles of justice must apply to male-female, to rich, to poor and to master an apprentice alike you know and these were radical claims at the time so it wasn't like she was an establishment figure even though she obviously mingled with people of power she she held what would be argued was radical views in fact melbourne who was obviously a longtime friend was a very traditional man and they often used to have debates and arguments about the position of women in the law and stuff and he, he although he would help her over his lifetime he kind of disagreed with her a lot um but yeah, she refused to accept that the law couldn't be used to sort of help people less fortunate. And uh, she used all her literary brilliance to sort of shine a light on that and um, her privilege as well. And she realised, she, realized she was quite aware of her privilege um, and uh, she used that to the advantage of women everywhere. house the point where we normally talk
0: about some interesting facts or some misconceptions or just something that's kind of stuck
1: out to us during our research. So, Nick, what what have you got to share with us today? There's a fantastic book written by Antonia Frazier, which is most of my research is based on for this podcast, and I recommend it to everyone, um, and it's called The Case of the Married Woman. She was actually responsible for unveiling the English Heritage Blue Plaque for Caroline, in April 2021 and it was unveiled at uh, Caroline's central London home for over 30 years which is now number three Chesterfield Street in Mayfair.
0: Yeah, it's obviously a topic that was close to Antonio Fraser's heart. It's always sort of slightly disappointing when you realise it takes so long for for somebody's deeds to be you know acknowledged. April 2021 seems very late to be you know, unveiling a plaque for someone like Caroline Norton, but I, I suppose we got there in the end. And I mean, she's—I guess she's not one of the bigger names when it comes to the sort of the the evolution of women's rights in Britain. I
1: think that's exactly right. She, as an author, she's also kind of faded into the background as well. And she wrote some interesting books and and uh, and some really lovely poetry. It's all very melancholy. Um, but yeah, she's. Um, She's she's largely sort of forgotten for her efforts to to get these bills over the line because it, she was one of, of many, many voices. And in fact, she, she says herself, she wrote in 1851, we are all ants moving our grains of sand to make a roadway and uh, by little and little the roadway will be seen, plain, broad and direct, though the ants were swept away unnoticed. Alluding to the fact that change is the result of lots of people working together to to influence the world. So yeah, she was quite a miracle lady. And that's our show. Uh,
0: thank you for listening. And if you're a subscriber, thank you for subscribing. Please do continue to listen. Uh, we have a whole backlog of episodes if you're new to us, so please do go and, and catch up on us. Uh, and, and keep an eye out for new episodes. We, we release every month or so. Uh, we're on all the usual streaming podcasty platforms so i'm sure you can find us easily enough but with that i think all that's left is for nick and i to say say uh <laughs> bye very very imaginative there i know keep it short and sweet uh, and to leave you with with a clue uh of what we'll be speaking about in the next
1: episode brilliant thank you for listening oh thank you bye the duke rang the great bell of bow And the historic peal sounded again.
0: Apples and pears.
1: Rosy Lee.
0: Dolly cart. I'm not ever known more of this pony, mate.